So last time we met, we looked at what it means to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. That way of thinking, that way of life, Paul continues to speak about in our text today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians 1.27. If not, follow along in your bulletins as we begin to read in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Lord, you are worthy of all honor. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you have called us into your presence. We thank you for inviting us to dwell in your kingdom, having adopted us as your children and washed us clean by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for your holy word, and we ask that you would give us faith to believe it is your word. Give us faith to look to you alone, who brings us out of darkness and into your glorious light. Give us once again the ability to focus on your word preached this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What do you think of when you hear that phrase? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Do you imagine a list of expectations that you must live up to? Some degree of purity and righteousness which needs to be accomplished to earn your standing as a worthy Christian? Do you think of how often you fail to live up to someone's expectation of what a Christian should look like? Too often, especially in the era that we live, there is a temptation to hear Twitter-length sound bites and provide our own context for the statement, really until we make it mean whatever we want it to mean. To hear only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel and then assume it's a statement against whatever vices we find most offensive. Now the Bible does speak often of how Christians are called to abstain from certain sinful behaviors and to seek out other virtuous behaviors. There is certainly truth that our behavior is on display and it communicates something about our God and about how highly or how lowly we value Him. But that's not what this text is about. And so if we're going to understand this text properly, it needs to be understood in the context that it's given. Notice that this is the first commandment Paul gives in this letter to the Philippians. Up until now, he's been updating them about his life, about his situation in jail, about people who seek to grieve him, about his love for the Philippian church and his love for Christ. He's explained how he's sitting in prison and he doesn't know if he's going to be set free or he's going to be sentenced to death. With this uncertainty, he begins this section when for the first time, the focus turns to the Philippians. The first word in our text tells us just how important the rest of the text is. He says, only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
This is a statement of priority. The one response Paul wants them to have, whether he is set free or sentenced to death, is that they live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. If you remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. It was a place where a large number of soldiers were encouraged to settle, both active and retired. They were proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens, and Paul knows this. Paul at times speaks proudly about his own Roman citizenship. You can't do this to me. I'm a Roman citizen. It's not unlike being an American abroad. Sure, you want to fit in, and you almost hope that they don't realize you're an American citizen while you're exploring a new culture. Yet, if the local authorities get involved, it won't take long before we let them know, you can't treat me this way. I'm an American citizen. There was pride that comes with their citizenship. And Paul is appealing to that with this phrase translated here, your manner of life. These words in Greek carry the idea of living as a citizen. He's saying, no matter what happens to me, I want you to live like citizens of the gospel because that's your primary identity. And he's going to expand on this idea in chapter 3 when we learn that while we are citizens of the United States or some other country, our primary and most important identity is that we are Christians, that we are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of the gospel, we are called to live worthy. This word worthy here comes from the Greek word axios, which literally means drawing down the scale. Imagine, if you will, an old-fashioned scale with two sides. If there was a two-pound weight on one side of the scale, whatever you put on the other side is supposed to pull down the scale until it is level with the two-pound weight. By weighing an object, the worth can be determined. In the marketplace, it might be gold or, or silver or produce or some sort. But what this means for the Philippians and for us is that we are to live a life that matches the gospel we have believed. Your life is on one side, and the gospel is on the other side. And this isn't the only place that Paul uses the word worthy. In Colossians 1.10, Paul uses the word worthy to encourage spiritual fruit in their lives. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. However, in the context we are looking at today, there is something different and very specific that he's pointing to. Before we get there, though, I want you to notice what he does say and what he does not say. He does say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He does not say, make your life worthy of the gospel. He does not say live perfectly. And I, I want to point this out because the temptation is often to observe the grace that God has given us and the forgiveness of our sins and then think from this point forward, it's up to us. It's our own strength. It's up to us to try to live as though we were people who no longer needed a Savior. Don't ever forget that the good news of the gospel is not that we have been given a second chance or even a hundredth chance. The good news of the gospel is that God has paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins in the past, our sins in the present, and our sins in the future, which we have not even committed yet. And that's why when we fail and we find ourselves in sin as believers, we should not run from God in shame. Rather, we should run towards God, asking for forgiveness and resting in the truth that we do receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
And that's why in our liturgy we have a corporate confession of sin. And that is followed by a text of scripture showing that God forgives us in the gospel. That's why when you come in here on a Sunday, we don't ask you, hey, anyone sinned this week? Because we know you did. We did too. And when we sin, God calls us to confess that sin. And that's not fun, but it's what God has asked of us. And in that act of confession, we are reminded of the love which God has for us in the gospel. We see this in 1 John 1, 9, which reads, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we meet together, we don't need to pretend that we're all perfect. We need to be reminded of the love and the forgiveness we have through faith in Christ. If indeed your faith is in Christ. So if living lives worthy of the gospel in Philippians 1.27 isn't about perfect lives, then what is it about? Simple answer is unity. It's about unity. It's about how the Philippians relate to each other as the church in Philippi. And it gives us direction about how we are to relate to each other as a church in Manhattan. You might know by now that one of my pet peeves with proper English is the failure to differentiate between the second person singular and the second person plural. If we could just fix our language, I wouldn't need to point this out to you so often, but as it is, I need to. It's important that you recognize this difference. In our passage, every time we read the words you or your, it's plural, which makes sense once you realize Paul is talking about unity. After all, unity is a pointless conversation for a man living alone on an island, or at least I hope so. It actually reminds me of my only, like literally the only joke I have memorized, and my wife can attest to this. There was a man stranded on an island for five years. One day a boat saw him from a distance, and they go to, to pick him up. And when they got there, they, they saw three huts, and they told him, go get the others and come on. And he said there were no others, just him. Really confused, they, they asked him, then, why are there three huts? And he said, that's where I live, that's where I go to church, and that's where I used to go to church. The idea of a man stranded alone on an island, still finding conflict and leaving his church over it, seems funny to us. Because it reflects what we actually see in the church in America today. That's not to say there aren't good reasons for leaving a church, but too often in our era, it's over very trivial issues. Now, we could certainly look at this across denominations, but Paul's writing to one church at one location, so I want to narrow our focus to the local church. What does unity look like for the church in Philippi and for the church in Manhattan? The first thing we see is that no matter what happens to him, he hopes to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind side by side for the faith of the gospel. We don't use this phrase standing firm very often. Paul did though. Fourteen times in his writing he encourages readers to stand firm. This also is a military word about not budging while facing an opponent. In wars, soldiers would make a wall by standing side by side. It was often called a wall of shields. And the strategy worked when everyone stood firm together. So long as they stayed next to each other and didn't budge, the only fighting they had to do was in front of them, since no enemy could get behind them. 
It's similar to what we see in the sport of football today. The, the stars are often the quarterbacks and the running backs and the receivers, but the guys who often make the biggest difference are the offensive linemen, yet most fans hardly know they even exist unless they get called for a penalty. It's a great life to live. The offensive lineman's job, though, during a pass play is to make a wall out of their bodies so that no defensive players can get to the quarterback. When they fail to stand firm and they are knocked back or pushed down, then the quarterback has to throw quickly. Or worse, he gets hit by the defensive player. He's sacked. This call to stand firm in our text is a group project. It's standing uncompromising together against any external attacks. In the case of unity within the church, it is us standing side by side, supporting each other. And the reason we can do this is because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. Jesus stood firm against the devil when he was tempted three times in the wilderness. He stood firm on the cross when he won the battle against sin for us. And because Jesus stood firm, we who have trusted in him by grace through faith are filled with the Holy Spirit, who now provides us with the strength to stand firm. Our text continues with the theme of unity by stating, we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Whenever we see the term spirit, we tend to want to assume it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And in this phrase, though, just as the word mind is a reference to the human mind, so the word spirit is a reference to the human spirit. It's another, another way of saying live in unity with each other. The last unity term we see is striving side by side. It's at the end of verse 27. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In the Greek, it's one word that gives us the whole phrase, striving side by side. In this case, it's an athletic word about wrestling alongside a teammate. And not against each other, but with each other, against a common opponent. And I love that this is an athletic term because we see athletes train hard, and they do so because they see a prize that they think is worthwhile and they desire. Personally, I could care less about winning in sports. That's why I'm a good Astros fan. Trophies and titles, they don't entice me, but the treasure every believer seeks is Christ, more of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is worth it. It, it means we're teammates, and we're teammates wrestling together for the faith of the gospel. I hope our desire is to encourage each other towards stronger faith in the gospel. And the truth is, anyone who encourages otherwise is not wrestling with you. They are wrestling against you. Doubts come. You'll likely struggle with doubts from time to time, and there is a place for that in the body of Christ. Thomas doubted, and Jesus didn't exclude him. But he worked to strengthen his faith, showing him the resurrection was real. And so while we might have doubts, that's not where we want to live. Now, in our text, it's clear that there is a direct and distinct connection between living as citizens worthy of the gospel and being unified together. Being committed to one another is, is very important. That's one reason we do church membership. It's a statement that these are my people, my teammates, my family. They need me and I need them. We are a family who is unified by the gospel and unified for the gospel. In the church family, we need not to be dependent on anyone, but rather we ought to be interdependent on everyone. 
And that's one of the saddest things about the modern church. Too often Christians think they, think they don't need the community. They think, I can read a great book or I can listen to a great sermon online and get everything I need. Well, you can get great teaching that way. But you can't get the community you need to fight the battle that you are in. And in our culture, unity is often based upon some simple common interest, a, a love of literature, or a love of sports, or a, a common school you attended. And those things make fine connections, good friends. But if we're honest, it's a weak commitment. It's weak because it's based around something that is just a mere interest. What strongly unifies us is the gospel. You may have very little in common with the person next to you right now, and yet if you are both trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, then there is a bond that is eternal. It is forever. You have a unity that crosses political ideology, a bond stronger than your cultural heritage, and it's beautiful. Unity is beautiful. I remember when I learned we'd be moving to Kansas, I wanted to see a field of sunflowers, and I thought they were everywhere in Kansas. I thought we'd pull up, and there would just be sunflower fields to the left and the right. And here I am eight years later, and I've still never seen a single sunflower field. But I've read about them. And I am intrigued by God's design of these things. As they are developing, the flowers always face the sun. As the sun crosses the sky, the flowers follow to face the sun directly. They are what's called heliotropic which means this flower follows the path of the sun across the sky each day, and then when the sun sets, it faces back to the east, waiting for the sun to rise again. This means that a field full of thousands of sunflowers are always facing in the same direction. There is unity, and though I've never seen it in person, the photos of this unity are absolutely beautiful. The unity of the sunflower comes from following the same object, the sun. And they do this because they need the sun to get energy and to grow properly. The unity of the church comes from following the same Savior, the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. That's the key to our unity. It's all of us looking to Jesus Christ and not to our own agendas. Unity isn't easy, though. One aspect of the fall is that our relationships are broken. Adam and Eve lived in harmony for a time. And then as a result of the fall, they faced conflict for the first time. And one aspect of the gospel that we often miss is that it not only reconciles us to God, but also to each other. Because of the forgiveness we have received through Christ, we can and we should now forgive others. In fact, if we can't forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ for the sins that they've committed against us, I'm not sure we understand the gospel properly. And the reason why is that when we are unwilling to forgive others, we are in a sense saying that we are better than God. If, if God can forgive me for my sin, which is against our God who is actually perfect, sinless, and holy, how can I, who am none of those things, remain unwilling to forgive a fellow sinner for their sin? You see, forgiveness begets forgiveness. Forgiveness we have received from Christ always gives birth to forgiveness we give others. This need for our unity cannot be overemphasized. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn over to John chapter 17 because here Jesus knows his death is near and he prays a prayer for the church. Follow along beginning in, in John 17 verse 20. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How does Jesus pray for his church? He prays for unity. We will feel this struggle in the life of Manhattan Press. Some will wish the liturgy was different at times. Some will wish we sang different songs or used different instruments. Some will desire more practical preaching or more theological preaching. I remember a while back when we were at a Presbyterian meeting, we joked that Manhattan Press was the perfect church. And it was a joke, and it was funny because there were no people. It was just a name on a piece of paper. And so if you're looking for the perfect church, this is not it. It ceased to be so the second the first person got on board. And so while we can't be perfect, we can be unified in purpose. We can come together as a family, united in Christ, who desire to invite others into our family so that they too can know the love of Christ just as we have. And that'll mean valuing the gospel and unity over our own preferences. That means we come with the attitude of John the Baptist in John 3.30. When he says, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And this will be put into practice outside of this building. You college students will face this as you interact with roommates. And you're going to be tempted to be impatient and angry at each other over dirty dishes or bills or, or when's the appropriate time to sleep and when's the appropriate time to turn the music up as loud as it can go and dance. All of us will face this in our day-to-day -day interaction with each other. You might hold different ideas about parenting. You might value promptness more or less than another. You may communicate in ways that intentionally or accidentally offend others. One way to help keep the unity, though, is to not speak about people, but to speak to people. If they didn't wash their dish and we're supposed to go to them and talk to them about the issue rather than talking to 10 other people about them, gossip will always destroy unity. And so value the gospel, value unity over the desire to vent and gossip. If someone has in fact sinned against you, Matthew 18.15 is very clear that you must go and talk to them. Not only can go and talk to them, but must go and talk to them. Listen to it. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And you can study the rest of Matthew 18 to know what to do if they don't listen to you. But this is how we are to handle sin against us. And we would avoid so much conflict if we would follow this simple process. The key thing to remember in all this is that your brother and your sister in Christ is in need of patience and sanctification just like you are. And so don't hate them for it. Help them. Fight alongside them, with them, but not against them. Now, verse 28 speaks to our not being afraid of those who are against us. It says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. We saw in verse 21 through 26 that Paul wasn't afraid of death. And he wasn't afraid because the gospel is true. Here we see how that lack of fear is a sign of salvation. This isn't saying that Fear of death means we don't possess salvation. But it's speaking of what is a clear sign. What displays outwardly to others that our faith is real. 
And when we aren't afraid of what others can do to us or what disease can do to us, it shows us that our faith is real. And we really believe that when we die, we will come into the presence of our Savior at that very moment. This lack of fear is a clear sign to others of their destruction because it shows to them that you possess a faith that they simply don't have. And the encouragement here is that we not be afraid of what others can do to us. You ever heard of St. Basil of Caesarea? St. Basil was a monk of the 4th century. In college, I remember reading a story about the emperor being upset at him for teaching what we would call biblical views of God. And in frustration, the emperor threatened Basil with confiscation, banishment, and, and death. And so the threat was this. It was, I will take everything you own from you. I'll make you leave this land and go live away from everyone you know, or I'll kill you. And Basil replies with what must be laced with sarcasm. He says, nothing more? Not one of those things touches me. His property cannot be forfeited who has none. Remember, monks own nothing. Even the robe belongs to the abbey. He continues, Banishment I know not, for I am restricted to no place, and am the guest of God, to whom the whole earth belongs. For martyrdom I am unfit, but death is a benefactor to me, for it sends me more quickly to God, to whom I live and move. I am also in great part already dead and have been for a long time, hastening to the grave. His reply to the threat of losing all his stuff, being removed from the country, or even death, is essentially showing that the threat has failed to bring any fear. And this would be arrogance, except the reason these threats fail to cause any fear in Basil is that he is completely satisfied in all that Christ is for him. Take my stuff. Really, none of it belongs to me anyway. Move me somewhere else. There I will live and worship God. Still, take my life? I dare you. You'd only bring me quicker to where I want to be in the presence of Christ. If even death has lost its sting, then why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid of the opponents of Christianity we face today? Why? I mean, it looks different everywhere. Right now in the Middle East, men and women and children are being put to death in gruesome ways by those who hate Christians. The Christians are standing strong in the face of death and praise God for that, for while their lives are being taken, their salvation cannot be taken. And their faith has proven strong even in the most fearful of situations. That's not the opposition we face, though. We get worried when we see a Darwin fish on a car. We get upset when Christians are ridiculed as, as stupid for their belief that God created the world or that Jesus came back from the dead. When you face those social, those intellectual fears, don't ever forget that these people need the gospel just like you need the gospel. And so don't be afraid of them. Pray for them. Pray that God might bring them the faith. And if they strike you with ideas that harm your faith, turn to your brothers and your sisters, those who are standing strong, standing firm alongside of you. Look to them for encouragement. This last portion of our text is about suffering. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Hmm. How come we never find this verse on adorable paintings hung on the walls of our homes? I'm included. We have some great verses on the wall. We have 1 Corinthians 13, which tells us that love is patient and so on. We have 
the ever-comforting Psalm 23, which speaks to God being our, our caring shepherd. We have Psalm 115.1 at our door as a reminder as we leave of the very reason we exist. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. However, if I'm honest, Philippians 1.29, which tells us, It has been granted to us not only to believe, but that we should suffer for the sake of Christ, was never considered. Ever. And maybe that's because we rarely consider the fact that our faith in Christ will bring suffering. We want to be bold. We want to have strong faith. We want to be Christians with faith like Peter or Lydia or Abraham or Rahab. Not her occupation, but her faith. We want to be like Paul, you know, to live as Christ. In fact, every so often I hear someone say they wish they were more like Paul. And I think, really? After meeting Christ, Paul lost all his friends. He lost his job. He lost his social prestige. He was put in prison many times. He received 39 lashes, really because that's the most they could legally give him. He was pummeled with stones and left to die, but didn't. He was in a shipwreck. He was bit by a snake. His fellow Christians were seeking to uh, afflict him on purpose. He received constant death threats. You want a life like that? It's the same with John the Baptist. Early we read the great statement by him and and we think, I want to be like John the Baptist. Well, don't forget the rest of his story. He confronts Herod for marrying his brother's wife. And people don't like it when you tell them their actions are sinful. Herod certainly didn't think John the Baptist had any right to be telling him who he could or could not marry. And Herod responds by putting John in prison and eventually has his head cut off and presented on a silver platter to a woman who asked for it. We should truly be thankful to God for placing us in this country. Not in pride because of America's power, but because it gives us freedom to worship God publicly, freedom to speak the word of God, at least for now. Truth is, applying a text like this to our situation is tough because we face so very little suffering as a result of our faith. Yes, that could change. Some people think it's going to change. However, that's not a reason for us to fear. Even if it does change, that is not a reason for us to fear because what can't be taken is the salvation Christ has secured for his people. The book of James speaks in a similar manner to how we embrace suffering. In James 1, 2, and 3, we read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Suffering is not joyful. It's not something we want, but we must be prepared for it. We must understand if God puts us through suffering of any kind, there is good that can come from it. It's not saying that suffering is good. It's saying that God can bring good from suffering. In James, we see that it can produce steadfastness. That is to say, it strengthens our faith. In the life of Joseph, we saw that it put him in a position to help multitude of people. When you inevitably face suffering of some degree in your life, let us not be angry at God, but thank him for the gospel. Thank him for a Savior who promises an eternal life, which is very different and far superior. Let's close with reading one of the promises about the future which God gives to us. In Revelation 21.4, we get a small picture of what eternal life will be like. It reads, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the formal things have passed away. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have called us to live worthy of the gospel. You have called us to unity, to being one body made up of many parts, all for the purpose of your glory and your kingdom. Give us patience. Give us one common focus like the amazing sunflowers you have created and who all look to one sun for strength. Give us clear understanding that even in the pain of suffering, we can count it joy as we look forward to the eternity that we will spend with you because of your calling us into your family through faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.